from our studios in the heart of New York City, it's The Hearst Show. With special guest, executive producer of The Weakest Link, Aaron Solomon. I'm Kyle Sarah, and now here's our host, Kyle Hershon. Well, it's been a while since we've been on the air. The Hearst Show is back on the air, and we're very happy that you're here. Uh, today's a little different. I've got my producer, Nick Morgison, next to me. Hi. Uh, we uh, we host the uh, the Nick and Kyle Show uh, when... Uh, live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. We got a very special guest. Uh, he is right now one of the executive producers for The Weakest Link, the current uh, revival of The Weakest Link, starring Jane Lynch on NBC. Please welcome Aaron Solomon. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, it was a pleasure to have you here. So actually, I was tipped uh, by uh, a good friend of uh, both of ours, Randy West, uh, that you would be a great guest to talk to. So uh, got to thank Mr. West for that. Thank you, Randy. You'll be on another yeah, s- show soon. Randy. <laughs> So uh, we were talking about this before the show. Uh, Congratulations. Season two of the weakest link. Thank Uh, you. The big, uh, the big reveal. So what can we expect? Is there anything, anything different coming for season two? We are actually in the process of doing some run throughs over zoom right now to kick around a few format twists. Uh, I'm not at liberty to say what they are. uh, And there's no guarantee that in fact, any of them will, uh, will go into play. Um, but, uh, one thing that I can say is we are expanding the types of visual questions, uh, that players may, uh, end up seeing. So we broaden that out. We, we think we have some fun ways to kind of ask those questions. Um, but yeah, we're just kind of looking at the format and seeing if there's any way that we can kind of introduce a wrinkle that kind of, uh, you know, after we're a couple rounds into the game, like now it shifts slightly and just adds a little more intrigue. So we're seeing if there's a way to do that. But the good thing is, you know, it's a tried and true format. So even if we can improve upon it, we're, we still feel like we're in pretty good shape with what's already there. Yeah, and you can't get anything past Jane Lynch. She is a rock. <laughs> She's awesome, yeah. Now, obviously, now because of uh, this show, Nick and I cannot become contestants. But what makes a great contestant for The Weakest Link? A great contestant um, can be one of several things. Um, a great contestant can be obviously someone who's phenomenally knowledgeable and great at trivia and, and is going to rival for, you know, to actually win it all. Um, but equally valuable to us is someone who is hysterically in over their head and gives ridiculous answers that then give fodder for Jane to kind of lay into them and say, you know, how could you think the answer was this? And, you know, because that's a big part of the game. Um, and honestly, and a third piece of it is, and, and we sort of unintentionally walked into this, is that one of our early episodes, we had a contestant, um, her name was Ariel, uh, and she ended up making it to the finals. And along the way, she really had this very like catty kind of a demeanor. And she was like saying these sort of cutting things to her opponents and stuff. And so really what was happening was unbeknownst to us, she was establishing herself as the villain. And we had this extremely likable competitor whose name was A. Noel. So we had A. Noel and a- Ariel. And they made it to the finals. And it was really a great episode because you could tell that like probably 95% of the country was rooting for A. Noel because she was just so likable. And the other girl was just <laughs> taking barbs at anybody she could. But the truth is that's what makes a good you know, reality show is you want to have that interpersonal conflict and you want to have someone you root for and sometimes someone you might root against. Oh, yeah. 
And going back to, you know, those ridiculous answers, I've seen quite a bit of those on this series. So um, it definitely makes for good talking points, great discussion points. And I think that's one of the main reasons why uh, we are now expecting another season of the show. So, uh, Nick, uh, what, what have you got to chime in on this? So, Aaron, you brought up great fodder for Jane Lynch uh, from certain content from contestants. Would you say that the mannerisms are kind of the same between Jane Lynch and Anne Robinson? Because I enjoyed in the old iteration, Anne Robinson reacting to dumb answers or having the mannerisms at the end of the round. You won this amount in your bank compared to such and such that you could have won. I kind of see the same mannerisms. Do you see that? Well, she definitely watched the show and she was a fan of the show even before we met with her about this. She, she was always a show that was on her radar as being, wow, what a cool kind of vehicle to really shine because the host kind of has a, a greater role on this than on most game shows uh, where you're just sort of the facilitator of, of questions, not to diminish the role of a host, but you know, this is really a star making kind of role um, for anybody. And she, of course, being a star already, it was just a natural fit with her Sue Sylvester character. Um, but what we encountered was, um, you know, we developed the show early into, in 2020, um, and this is before the pandemic happened. And so we were having meetings and stuff. And then all of a sudden when that took place and suddenly everybody was losing their jobs and there was this sense of, you know, fear of like, is life ever going to go back to normal? We started questioning like, wow, like, is this the right time to do a show that's like purely mean spirited and just cutting and like, do, do people need that? Is that like kicking people when they're down? And so we kind of ended up in a philosophical conversation with Jane and trying to feel it out. And where we sort of landed was, you know, Jane, uh, Anne in the original version would always end the show with sort of like a wink, just to be like, that was her way of saying, just kidding, I don't really mean it. With Jane, we wanted to really kind of in her mannerisms establish early on that it was all in fun. Like we didn't want her to take quite the same school marm sort of tone. Um, and that I said, really, I said, think of it this way. Rather than saying, you know, when somebody gets voted off, your final line to them is like a nail in their coffin, like rather than thinking of it as that, thinking of it, this is the badge that they're going to wear for the rest of their life. This is like Jane Lynch told me this, you know, and so it should be fun and playful, but never really like mean spirited. And we don't want people leaving the set feeling worse than they did, you know, coming in. Right, because uh, I definitely noticed that in the the newer run of the show, she definitely has a bit more of a relaxed uh attitude towards uh sending people home unlike Anne, who was completely ruthless and speaking of the original run on nbc i think uh according to your imdb you were working for that show right i for a hot minute i was yeah i was uh it just so happened around that time i was working on the family feud uh louis anderson version when he was hosting ah, one of my favorite runs yeah, it was, in fact, this was the run that started what is now the Steve Harvey run. And of course, Steve really, you know, vaulted it into the stratosphere. But um, I did the first three seasons of that. And we were shooting, um, so I think, season two and three at the old NBC studios in Burbank. And literally right down the hall was the Weakest Link offices. So when we went on hiatus on Feud, um, Weakest Link happened to be starting up right then. And it was great. So I joined on and I was there for a few months. And I, I think I wrote on, I don't know, five... Uh, I might have only been there for like five or six weeks or something. And then Family Feud came back. So I bounced back to Feud since they really had kind of given me my break in the business. Um, so I got a chance to work for a minute on Weakest Link. And I, I was there for some early run throughs and got to sort of absorb, you know, what is the process when, 
we're stopping down between rounds to kind of figure out, okay, who's the strongest link, who's weakest, who are we going to talk to, what sort of drama are we going to build in this round, what conflicts are we going to try to create. So that was really useful information for, for myself and for Stuart Krasnow, our showrunner. You know, some 20 years later, we're now, you know, trying to recall, like, how did we do that? And, you know, and so it's just good to have that in the back recesses of our mind. So you were talking about COVID protocols with us beforehand. Every game show, every TV show is trying to figure out the million dollar question, how we're going to get back in the studio, what the protocol is going to be. So what are the protocols you're trying to figure out, Aaron, with the weakest link? Well, we were fortunate but that by the time we went into studio, there were a couple of the game shows that had already gone in. I think the, the first major game show was Card Sharks. Um, and, you know, the, everyone in the game show industry, we tend to know at least a couple people on, on every show. So we're checking in and being like, how's it going over there? Were there any issues? What should we be watchful for? Um, and so they kind of were the uh, test balloon. Um, and I guess they had, at one point, there was a scare on their show where somebody came back like inconclusive that morning. And so they had to do a huge quarantine. Turned out to be nothing, but it was a good informative thing for us about like, oh, what if? Like, what if somebody who is normally, you know, in Jane's ear test positive? And obviously we don't want to expose the host. So we just really had to think about all the parameters. By the time we got into shoot, which was, uh, I think it was late July, early August, uh, or late, no, it was late August, early September, um, there was a playbook pretty well set up um, that was an industry-wide standard. And so what there were was a different frequency of mandatory COVID tests that, depending on what role you had on the show, that, that dictated how frequently you needed to be tested. So if you were just like, not just, but if you were someone who, let's say, um, you know, you built the set and then that's it. And you don't have to be on set for the actual taping. You would maybe get tested once a week or whatever, just to sort of be covered. But for people like myself and Stuart, who were in contact with like the host every day and with contestants, you know, still six feet apart, but nevertheless close, we had to get tested every other day. Uh, and then every morning, just as I'm sure you have been to like any restaurant where they do your temperature check on your forehead and, you know, you have to tell them, do you feel any symptoms and all that? We had to go through all that. And then of course there were, you know, masks obviously were mandatory and then there were uh, hand-washing stations and sanitizer everywhere. So um, it, it was interesting because it was all still fairly new to all of us about how do we handle a pandemic, much less shoot a TV show first season. But um, we got it done and to our credit of our production staff, they were all over it and, and it really was uh, very thoroughly handled. I just have one quick follow-up on that. We, we've seen on a lot of the shows, the camera angles, show that uh, the people are actually a lot closer to each other. Like I've seen it on uh, Kelly and Ryan. They actually look a lot closer than they do from the side angle. Mm -hmm. What is the actual distance? Are you actually doing six feet? Are you doing more than six feet? What are you doing with the contestants in that situation? Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that was a real conversation that we had. And we sort of realized without intending to, because this was in development before COVID, that Weakest Link is kind of the staging of it is almost like built for social distancing because it's unlike most game shows where there are two people side by side or like a Hollywood squares where the host is kind of in the middle. Um, everybody was naturally spread out to create this sort of aura of like, you're on your own island, good luck to you. Um, but the original distance between podiums was four and a half feet. And so we looked at it and we said, why don't we make it six feet? So that way we can just, for, not only for safety, but it's not that much bigger. And it also creates even more of a sense of like, boy, these people are, you know, just, apart from each other and it's they're, they're kind of playing their own game and then when they're locking in it makes it harder to see what everyone else is locking in because they're a little farther away 
the distance from each individual contestant to Jane, I believe is 16 feet. Um, so yeah, once we were able to separate uh, in that sort of arc um, and make sure everybody was a minimum of six from each other, the distance to the host was not an issue because that was already significant. Oh yeah, so, and you know, if, if, if you're a fan of the show, people out there, uh, you, you notice that the stage almost kind of looks like a wheel in a way, you know, kind of like a big circle. So I'm pretty sure, you know, that wasn't that big of a challenge. All you just had to do is, uh, did you have to like make the set bigger? Did you have to uh, adjust uh, any sort of set pieces? Obviously you can't have an audience. So the screens behind them definitely made the touch. Yeah, well, uh, it was a challenge. I think we were kind of right at the limit in terms of where, you know, the challenge is always where to put cameras because cameras need to at times zoom in and get close up reactions. But then you also have that amazing pullback that the crane does that, you know, captures it's sort of a signature shot. Right. Um, and I think it, it was a lot of conversations with our director, Ashley Gorman, and our set designer, uh, Zaya Marr, who um, just figured out that you know, it's just because you're separating, now we're getting mathematical, but just because you're separating people by six feet doesn't mean it's like a linear thing. It doesn't mean like 48 feet across because it's arcing. So it actually does curve in a little bit. So we figured out like once the curvature was uh, in place, like that is the outer limit of our wide shot in terms of, you know, we obviously have to include the podium one and podium eight person on any group shot. So it was close. I remember they, they had to change it because it was obviously a wider uh, circumference than the previous show. Um, but we did that. I'll, I'll tell you, though, the bigger challenge for us um, was one that I, I sort of take the blame for, for setting in motion, which was um, I always thought it would be nice to see when someone gets eliminated, where do they go? And the old version of the show, you only really saw 180 degrees of the set and they would right. leave and they'd cross and they'd sort of go toward camera. And the next time you see them, they're in this sort of like post-mortem, you know, debrief about, you know, I shouldn't have been voted off. Um, but I, I thought, gosh, like we have an opportunity to like really mythologize their exit. Like, where do they go? And so that's where the idea of this tunnel came in that we created. And once we said, oh, we could do a tunnel, um, we realized, well, that means that we now need to shoot the backside of the set. So the whole set needs to be basically 360 with camera blinds. And that became our biggest logistical challenge is how to do camera coverage there. And, you know, again, we have this massive techno crane that I think has like a 50 foot arm to it, like the biggest one that's commercially available. So we had to find a way where are we going to put that? Because when you shoot the reverse shot of that, you don't want this big, ugly thing to be in the shot. So it was a, a real challenge that Ashley and Zaya worked beautifully to, to figure out. Uh, yeah, it looked completely seamless. And, you know, I, I, I figured that the tunnel was a nice little, honestly, it was it was an ode to Star Trek in a way. <laughs> um, so, you know what it was? I'll tell you, it actually, there was a very specific inspiration for it, which is, um, I don't know, uh, where are you guys based? You're in, we're based in New York City. In New York City. Okay. So, you, I guess you probably, uh, Disney World is more of a reference for you. Yes. I shouldn't even be saying a Disney reference from NBC, but just That's being okay. honest, um, have you guys ever been on Space Mountain, the ride? Yes. Okay. You know, in the beginning of it, when you go up this tunnel and it's sort of like you're launching there. That was, I found video of that online and that's what we sent to our set designers and we're like, imagine this. And so that's where we sort of ended up with um, 
I can't think of the name of the, the lighting devices that we have that line uh, the, the different rings to it. Um, I know I hear it like once a week and of course it's out of my head, but <laughs> Um, yeah, that was the initial inspiration was like, you're sort of going down this like super cool, like futuristic tunnel. But then at the back of the tunnel is this sort of screen that allows, it's almost like you're going into nothingness. And early versions of our uh, creative were like, we wanted to have almost like flames, like it's like hell, like you're going mm. to, and like Jane's coming out of hell to, to make everyone's <laughs> life hell. And when you lose, you go to hell, you know, and it's like, that's a little extreme, you know? So we kind of, figured out a more of a nebulous void kind of a yeah stranger things upside down kind of world that she comes from and eliminated players ultimately go to you you hear that kids imagination is the best thing about creating things you never know what could come out of it that's right (laughs) well yeah go ahead I want to go back to what you said about the reality TV angle, because I thought that was quite interesting. Like you said, you're trying to get the contestants who lost, you're getting them off the set. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at other shows which do actual reality, like The Bachelor or Survivor, you're watching them off screen. Was that kind of a look into those shows doing the reality angle, or was that more of a trend that we're heading towards reality TV in that sense? Yeah, well, this actually, this particular beat was one that existed in the original format. Um, and back in 2001, I know that um, the original Weakest Link, the original NBC Weakest Link anyway, was pitched as Survivor, but in one hour. That was sort of the one-liner of it, is that you've got people forming alliances, teaming up on other people, or, you know, but ultimately backstabbing them, and then only one's going to win the whole thing. And all that takes place in an hour, you don't have to watch the whole season. So I know that they were looking carefully at um, other shows and how they sort of engendered that sort of conflict. Um, but also, you know, not, it's not always conflict. Sometimes like, um, I don't know how many episodes you saw, but we had one where the two, like you would just never expect it. This like six foot five African-American woman and this like five foot, whatever, pretty boy, blonde kid like hipstery guy or whatever um <laughs> ended up having this total flirtation and they were just like overtly talking about oh yeah i'm protecting you because that's my girl and uh, she's my <laughs> and they were like saying you know everything short of like we're gonna hook up after the show so <laughs> you know those kind of dynamics are are great too and and if we you know we obviously can't predict and, and we're because it's a game show and it's really about the competition we're not going to do anything to influence who befriends or who um, antagonizes who, because then that would be us manipulating. But what we can do is cast um, an assemblage of eight people for each uh, show that are different personality types. And we said, you know, boy, this one's like really outspoken. And so is this one. Let's just throw them on there and see what happens, you know? Uh, And then sometimes it works and sometimes we get surprises. That's what makes reality. Oh yeah, totally. So let's say it's a day taping. What's a day in the life of Aaron like? A lot of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sometimes five-hour energy, depending uh, how bad of a day it is. No, well, we actually, season one, we had a really brutal schedule. We were shooting three episodes a day. Okay. um, And that's an hour, you know, three hour long episodes. So each hour would take an average of about three hours to tape. Um, because of all the stop downs and the calculations and figuring out, you know, the logistics and the vote offs and not to mention, you know, Oh, we didn't get the right camera shot that it bobbled. Let's do it again. 
Um, and then there's the, all the prep time and stuff that goes into each episode, running all the questions by Jane so that she's read them first and has you know, questions about pronunciation. Anyway, so we, our tape days were very long. They were, they were probably, you know, we got there at 7 a.m. and we would usually be done shortly after midnight. Wow. Um, wow. So thankfully this season, uh, the network agreed that we would only do two a day at most, which is as many as, as the original NBC did. Um, it's still a long day, um, but at least it's not like super exhausting and morale killing. You know, it's, we're also trying to keep in mind that Jane is having to power through all of these and, you know, she oh, yeah. can't have her losing her voice. And she's also doing Marvelous Miss Maisel and other movies and things. And we just, you know, we have to be respectful of, of her and not burn her out. Oh yeah. And I, and I totally agree. I mean, geez, I thought I had a long day when I was on wheel of fortune, uh, but you know, because I got in at 7.30 in the morning, didn't leave until like 7.30 at night, because obviously it was the last show to go, so yeah, to stay there. But, damn! Hey, you need you need some PAs? Nick and I can help. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I wish we were, uh, you know, I was doing Pyramid in New York for a few years, and uh, yeah, you know, at the time, if, uh, I think you and I didn't really connect until like shortly after that. No, I think it was probably like right, oh God, I can't even remember. But it yeah. was probably right after that run of Pyramid. Um, right. Because uh, I went to a taping of Pyramid and I, I, I met, I, I met, um, I met Strahan. I met Tom Kelly. Great guy. Yeah. Um, great guys. And I, I believe at the time, John Ritchie was still working there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm looking at your, your, your bio sheet. You, basically all the shows you worked on were game shows. I mean, I see... You did uh, Snoop Dogg's Joker's Wild. You did, uh, as you mentioned, a hundred thousand dollar pyramid. You even mm-hmm. uh, were co executive producer of Confetti on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Nick Confetti was the Facebook equivalent to HQ Trivia. Got yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. I th- I won twenty five hundred bucks on that show. Did you? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I actually it was one of the first few games that they started. And I, I was actually at work and I was on my phone. It was the end of the night. So nobody was coming into the, to work. So I was just playing the game and I ended up winning like 550 bucks. On the first game That's I played. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it was the, the best thing about that show was to be a contestant on that because, you know, it was, it had nowhere near the uh, public awareness of HQ because obviously HQ is a phenomenon. Yeah. And so in, in, especially in the early, early days of confetti, Facebook was throwing like significant money uh, into the prize pot, like they, cause they could afford it, you know? Um, so, you know, whereas HQ was playing for 2,500 or 5,000 that was split amongst all the winners, you know, they were paying up to 25,000 or 50,000 in a single episode. Um, so if you were one of the, you know, I don't know, 15 or 20,000 people that were playing and you were good at it, you had a real shot any night to not just win, but like win a significant amount that was really worth your while. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and I noticed that you've done a lot of kid stuff, too. You've done a few episodes of Webheads. You've done Brain Surge. I, yep. I tried to get on that show many, many times. Never, never did. Uh, now, I want to I want to know something about this. Is there really like a difference in the quality of work when either working for like a big budget game show or something like Brain Surge where you get like a, a scooter, a, a little television and you get slime? Right. Is it cheaper? Cause it's cable. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <I> mean, 
No, and it's sure, fair. we'll I mean, go with that. A, I'll tell you though, um, yeah, generally speaking, network shows tend to have bigger budgets and you know, they um, but they tend to want to put that on screen more so because there's a primetime look and an expectation around it that cable shows you know don't necessarily hold themselves to. That being said, um, you know, there was this trend that basically after Millionaire was a hit and, you know, redefined what a game show looks like with the whole like lighting and the scoring oh, yeah. everything wall to wall with music. Um, suddenly everybody from, you know, uh, Game Show Network to uh, syndicated shows wanted to do something that felt prime time network, even if they didn't have the budget to really do that. So some would do it to greater or lesser extent. It really comes down to um, how well uh, budgeted each particular show is like Snoop Dogg's Joker's Wild. We actually had a really significantly big budget for that for TBS, um, which was great. So we got to do a whole lot of, you know, everything became sort of a variety show. Like you would spin something and then there was a whole bit that would have with props and a talking bong or whatever it was. <laughs> um, you know, we, we were pretty much able to do a lot of that stuff. Um, but there are other shows where they're just like, this is all we have. So come up with a very straight ahead thing, just write questions and put contestants out there and, that's all we can afford and we'll see what it, what happens. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, go ahead, Nick. I was going to say, is there a difference between working on a kid's show like brain surge and Joker's wild? Like, do you have to switch the mindset when you're working on these type of shows? And what do you do? Because it's very easy to, when you're working all these shows, you kind of get lost in doing one specific genre. Right. Cause the last thing you want to do is, uh, put a, a weed joke in, in a, a kid's show. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say that, yeah, the biggest thing is a lot less cursing in the contestant briefing in the morning. Um, but it, no, that actually is something because, uh, you know, we, I, I don't know how it is for you guys, but I found that like uh, in my daily life, like sometimes I will insert curse words or choice language when I'm not even thinking about it. It's just become such second nature. Yeah. And so yeah. there is like, we do have a conversation at the beginning of the season to say, okay, just so we know there's going to be kids here. You know, we always have to look like, you know, we need to be in control, even if we're, we know that the house is burning down or whatever, the kids need to feel like everything's fine. You know, we never panic. We never, you know, use foul language around them. Um, and then in terms of the content itself, yeah, it's, um, you know, we obviously want to figure out as best as we can, what is of interest to kids not just like what do 40 year old, you know, men think a 20 year old or, or not even a 20 year old, it would be like a, you know, a nine to 12 year old would be into. So there's a lot of people asking their kids, Hey, is this cool? Is that cool? You know, testing out questions on them and stuff like that, just to kind of get a feel. And then also, is this prize cool? You know, cause the last thing we want to do is give away a prize. Everyone's like, Oh my God, that's so like 2019, you know? So yeah. it is it's an adjustment. Yeah. It's like the original run of figure it out. I remember there was a there was a girl that won a snowboard uh and I think also like won a ski trip or something. And and summer's like, hey, do you like skiing? And no. Well, there you're gonna learn. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Nice yeah. So yeah, you know, there it's a really tough kids, I think, are the toughest market out there. Um, and yeah. you know, to produce a long running show. I mean. I consider Brain Surge a long-running show. It had a few good years on the air. Yeah. Um, My first Emmy nomination, too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so out of all the series that you've worked on, I mean, one versus 100, uh, you did a Temptation, you did Identity, Show Me the Money. Uh, I'm looking at all these things, and 
Was there a series that you particularly enjoyed the most? Um, well, Pyramid was always a dream to work on, and I, I got to work on two versions of it, the Donny Osmond syndicated, Donny Osmond. and then the big primetime version with Strahan. And so, you know, there's that's as close to a perfect game, you know, as I think is out there. And it's just one I grew up watching and playing and my family loves. And um, so that was really fun. Um, but another show that I, I really enjoyed, and I, I call it the best show that nobody watched, although I'm, I'm guessing you might have seen it, just knowing, uh, you know, your background, uh, it was a show that came out uh, on ABC about mm, maybe 12 or 15 years ago called I think Million I've been Dollar Mind Game. Yes. Million oh, Dollar yeah. Mind Game. If you've ever seen it. And it was based on a Russian format that I think is still on the air. It had been on the air, I think, 30 or 35 years at the time. And the conceit was you put together a team of six people and you all sit around a table and the table has a screen on it. And the, uh, basically a riddle will appear and the, you know, you have to discuss uh, in the, the ensuing 60 seconds, discuss all the aspects of it. You're looking for clues. You're trying to figure out like, why did they phrase it exactly this way? And then the captain of the team has to deliver the final answer. Um, and if you're correct, the team adds money. And if not, and then there's moments where once you start really getting up there, everybody votes if they want to keep going or if they want to stop. And all it takes is one person to say, keep going. And then the whole team has to go. So it, it was a great really cool like high-minded show it was the hardest show I've ever written questions for because of just how demanding the wordplay was and how specific uh, they all were um, but the story behind that show was it was greenlit by ABC um, with the idea that it would be a companion to Dancing with the Stars and dancing was you know everybody was in their cocktail you know the finest wardrobe you know ball gowns and whatever um, so we would do that. And then coming out of that, it would be like essentially this casino Royale looking set where everyone's in tuxes and the host was in a white dinner jacket. And it just yeah. felt like tonight's formal night, you know, on ABC. Yeah. And, uh, between the time that we filmed and the time that we would have gone to air, the executive at ABC was let go. The one who championed it. Uh, and wow. as often happens in our business, um, when a new person comes in, they just want to clean the slate because they're like, well, obviously the old person didn't work out. Let's just clear it all out. So it was sitting on a shelf. We had six episodes of it. We thought it would never air just because that's just typical of what happens. But then the NBA lockout happened. And uh, suddenly there were these three hour blocks on Sunday afternoon, opposite NFL football um, that they needed to fill. And they were like, what do we have? What do we have? And so for that reason, you know, you could flip from the Miami Dolphin New England Patriot game at, uh, Sunday at two o'clock to watch six people in tuxedos answering the hardest questions imaginable. <laughs> um, not exactly a dream time slot for us, but it was, we were glad that it at least saw the light of day because some of our, you know, really hardcore game show fans uh, enjoyed it for its short run. Oh, yeah. So before we go, uh, well, I, I have one more, I have one more question. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. So, in your role, whether it's writing questions or trying to figure out what you're going to do for the show, with all the political issues and all the cancel culture issues, does that come into, I guess, the thought process of some of the questions? Or do you try to stay away from all that information? Or do you guys try to put in questions for any of that uh, of those topics? So to NBC's credit, um, they have specifically um, given us a, a mandate, if you will, that they want to have the question material reflect inclusivity, which is to say it doesn't just mean questions about 
African-American people or LGBTQ, but it, it means thinking about what the perspectives are of all the different viewers. What are they interested in? How do they see the world? What's culturally important to them? What foods are they eating? What shows are they watching? So that it's not, you know, just getting outside the typical, like, you know, it's very easy to assume that my worldview is the same as everyone else's. And the truth is it's obviously not. So we have put a great deal of emphasis on making sure that the questions throughout the round um, are not only different in terms of like pure trivia difficulty, but they actually uh, reflect different viewpoints. Um, you know, so that, that's a thing. As far as the actual subject matter, we, we try not to talk about controversial issues that will, you know, take you out of the fun of the escapism of a game show because, you know, you've got CNN going or MSN, whatever your network is that you're watching all day long and you're getting enough of that you know, drilled into your head and you come, you, people want to kind of escape. So we tend to focus on more uplifting, positive, proactive things rather than things that are going to remind people of conflict and, oh yeah, that's right. The world is so crazy and uncertain right now. Yeah. Actually, I do want to follow up with this question. Um, Governor uh, Gavin Newsom is saying that I think, I think sometime in the summer, mm -hmm. the, they're going to allow the state to basically go to usual operations. Uh, so what is this going to entail for for game shows? Are they going to allow audiences? And if they are, are they going to be required to mask up? Like, uh, do you know what the protocol is going to be? I don't yet. I've been reading the same updates as, as you have, though, that, you know, which is that things are trending positively. That's obviously just great on a human level. Um, but in terms of uh, the game shows, we, as of right now, we're operating under the assumption that when we shoot in June, it'll be identical circumstances to last year that we're going to err on the side of being as cautious as we possibly can. That said, we did build our set with the idea that um, it, it almost looks like a bit like a sports stadium in the sense that if you've been to a baseball stadium and sort of like at the edge of every colonnade or loge is like this LED banner that goes around. Yeah. Um, so in between those, you, as I think you touched on before, we have these giant monitors that are mainly used for like throwing up prompters copy for Jane, like on shots where that we don't see it. Like anytime we need a prompter, mm -hmm. but otherwise it's just totally a black void. And the idea is that if, and when we come back, we'll turn those into like stadium seating. Um, so it'll actually feel like you're in sort of like the Thunderdome or whatever yeah. it is, this like trivia dome. Um, we just don't know. We just don't know at what point we can do that. Um, it'd be great, obviously, if we, we could. Um, we'd love to have you come out and, you know, be our guest for a taping as soon totally. as uh, that happens. Yeah. yeah. So before we go, um, I know that you, uh, you, you and I have talked about this uh, previously. Uh, you invented a board game. I did. It's called also known as it's it's a it's a very fun party game. And uh, it basically it's like a reversal of pyramid and password. Uh, you you got to guess what a certain subject is by mm -hmm. figuring out their ulterior name. We were discussing this actually, and I was getting tested beforehand just to yeah. see how this would go because the last failed experiment we had doing a game show, I didn't do so great. So yeah, <laughs> I put him and another friend in a round of Jeopardy, and they did horrible. Oh no! So here's what I'm gonna do: I'm gonna put both of you on, on the spot right now. We're gonna play a round of also known as. 
Okay. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to set a timer for each of you. So I'm going to start with you, Nick. Okay. Uh, you're going to have to name as many of these subjects in, in a minute. So okay, let's, let's make Nick look dumb. Okay, cool. All <laughs> right. So you, your one minute starts when I start reading. Okay. Your category is Russell Crowe movie. Your time starts now. Happy after eating a lady. Pass. I don't know. Okay, we'll pass. Queen of England. Hathaway knocking down pins. I don't know any of his movies. This is going to be bad. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, the next one. Actor, rapper. Half of an Arnold Palmer. Oh, Ice-T. Yes. Snow White's Dwarf, where Otis Redding sits. Pass. I don't know. Okay. Famous play, Passing of a Door-to-Door Guy. You're killing me, Kyle. Wow. Oh, geez. Shampoo brand, Cranium and Scalpulas. Cranium and Scalpulas. I don't know. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Halle Berry movie, Saber Flounder. You think I know Halle Berry movies? This okay. is a problem. <laughs> brand of Juice, Fast Housekeeper. Kyle, this is putting me on the spot. Oh my god, all right. Time's up. Time's okay. up. I got one. Okay. You got one. Okay, the ones you passed on. Russell Crowe movie. Happy after eating a lady. That was Gladiator. Oh, okay. Queen of England. That was a tough ha- one. Yeah. Hathaway knocking down pins. That's Anne Boylan. Oh. Bolian. I think that's how you say your name. Anne Boleyn, yeah. Anne Boleyn, that's right. Uh Snow White's Dwarf, where Otis Redding sits, Doc. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I'm Got surprised it. you didn't get this one. Famous play, Passing of a Door-to-Door Guy, Death of a Salesman. Oh. Shampoo brand, Cranium and Scalpulas, that is Head and Shoulders. Oh, Head and Shoulders. Ah. Okay. Halle Berry movie, Saber Flounder, uh, with that Swordfish. Yeah, okay. And uh, Brand of Juice. I actually Fast- forgot what that was, and I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> brand of Juice, Fast Housekeeper, that is Minute Maid. Oh, Minute Maid. Ugh. So in, in this case, Aaron, what would Jane Lynch say oh, no. to someone like Nick? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who's also known as a loser? You were the weakest link. Goodbye. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> all right uh, now i'm gonna put you through the, the same test uh, i'm gonna sure. get another i'm gonna get another minute on the clock and your your time will start when i uh start reading the clue all right your category is bottled water brand go south pacific country uh fiji yes meryl street movie my mother uh mama mia yes Popular TV show, Contest of Toilets. Game of Thrones. Yes. In the medicine chest, rock group help. Uh, pass it. Okay. U.S. holiday, contractions from sunrise to sunset. Labor Day. Yes. Kanye West song, 1849 minor. Gold Digger. Yes. Bradley Cooper movie, The Result of Excessive Drinking. The Hangover? Yes. Lady Gaga song, Terrible Courtship. Bad Romance? Yes. Famous astronaut, uh, genuflect, powerful bicep. Uh, Pass. Classic TV show, I'm I'm enamored with... uh, Time's up. 
Uh, ah, the, one, okay. the, the ones you passed on in, in the medicine chest, uh, rock group health, that's Band-Aid. Uh, famous uh, astronaut, right. genuflect, powerful bicep, Neil Armstrong. Uh-huh. And classic TV show, I couldn't get to it. I'm enamored with Linus's sister. I love Lucy. Uh, so, uh, Nick, once again, uh, you were beat. <laughs> I would I would have known more of that second round of questions, though. Of course. For sure. I saw you nodding at like all those. I feel like if, if we flipped them, it might have been a different outcome. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, that's all. also known as uh, where can you buy this game? Uh, well, it's available on Amazon, so that's the easiest place to get it. You can also go to endlessgames.com, uh, and then they have you can read up about it. They have a video that you can see how it's played and decide if it's uh, if it's right for you. And I, and I understand. I think we were talking about this. I think this was initially formatted as a TV show, right? It was. Uh, yeah, I actually, in fact, once upon a time, I pitched it to Harry Friedman, uh, of course, of uh, Jeopardy, Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think at the time they were, he was like, you know, we're, we're pretty set with these two shows. I don't think they're going <laughs> anywhere. Um, but yeah, just years later, th- this was actually the second, uh, game that I sold to endless games. The first was more of an uh, adult oriented party game that we probably don't want to go into on this podcast, but oh, we could. After, it's fine. Uh, okay. Um, but after it came out, um, that was awkward was the name of the game. Oh, okay, yes. Um, I do remember that, yeah. Yeah, and and so um, they, they basically, the Endless Games was like, well, what else do you have? And I said, well, let me look at all these other, you know, I've got so many formats from over the years of things that just didn't quite go. And they said, you know, I pitched this one. It was originally called Say What was what it was called. And uh, they said, eh, we don't really like that name. What else could it be? And, you know, we were trying, what was the, we had another name for it. Um, oh, In Other Words was going to be the, the original title but then it turns out there is a game called in other words out there that's played not quite the same um so it's just a matter of finding legal copyright clearance and, and that's we settled on aka also known as yeah and uh, i actually told you this i was going to format it for a, a, a game show at my alma mater but unfortunately COVID 19 hit and we couldn't do it so uh yeah that, that's that but anyway uh Aaron, hopefully we're, we'll be able to do things like that soon right hopefully yeah and if you need help you know, you've got us. We can, we'll come out to LA and do it. Uh, Aaron Solomon, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. And uh, next week is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be speaking with the Mark Summers from the hit Nickelodeon show, Double Dare, Food Network, and everything of the sort. Tune in next week. You're going to enjoy that. Along with Nick Morgison, I'm Kyle Hershon. So long. Bye, everybody. Hey, this is Hirsch. Thank you so much for tuning in to Episode 6 of The Hirsch Show. It really, really means a lot. Episode 7 coming out next week will feature Mark Summers. Yes, that Mark Summers from Double Dare, Unwrapped, What Would You Do? It's going to be one heck of a time. Tune in.